friends, welcome back to Rewildology, the show all about conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brick Mitchell Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. Tell me, can you relate to this scenario? You turn on your TV to catch up on the day's news and a negative headline pops up about your favorite species, an at-risk landscape, or an important biodiversity hotspot, and you think to yourself, I must do something. Maybe I should start a nonprofit and make the difference I'd like to see in the world. I've thought this so many times that I've literally lost count. <laughs> you all know my obsession with big cats, and it's very rare to hear anything positive about them. While it might sound relatively simple to launch a nonprofit, what does it actually take to run a successful organization? In today's episode, I'm chatting with Terry Parker, PhD, the executive director of Rocky Mountain Wild. Terry grew up in the small town of Hygiene, Colorado, and was influenced by the 70s environmental movement and political artists like John Denver. When Terry graduated from high school, she left her tiny town as quickly as possible, which I can totally relate to, and moved to California to study TV and broadcasting. She soon realized that radio and TV weren't her thing. After some soul-searching and research, she found her passion in environmental education and went on to receive her master's and PhD in the field. After her studies, she led a renewable energy nonprofit in Wisconsin for 20 years before moving back to Colorado to become the executive director of Rocky Mountain Wild, where she has been working since the early 2010s. We chat in depth about what it takes to lead a nonprofit organization, the work Rocky Mountain Wild is doing to protect and restore biodiversity in Colorado, and the growing socially conscious business movement. If you liked today's episode, share it with a friend or post it on your Instagram story and tag Rewildology. Also, give the show a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or in another app that allows you to review shows. Subscribing and reviewing is the best way to help others organically find the show. Let's get the good conservation word out there, friends. All right, everyone, on to my conversation with Terry. Awesome. Oh, thank you so much, Terry, for coming on. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm, and we're actually meeting in person. I know. What? So excited. I know. It's been the first time I've done an in-person interview in Denver in so long. Like, yeah. This is amazing. Even just driving downtown was, like, so much fun. I know. it. I know. I was, oh, yeah, I used to do this. And mm -hmm. then I went to the parking lot, and somebody was parked in my parking spot. Oh, no. How can that how can that be? That was mine a year and a half ago. A year and a half. How yeah. claimed it for me? Well, it's um, it, it's one of the few electric car parking spots downtown. And so usually when I would come downtown, there wouldn't be anybody else with an electric vehicle. Who is this person that I should like, but I don't right at the moment? Yeah, because you're in my parking spot. They're in my spot. <laughs> but anyway, it's fun to be downtown. What car do you have? I have a Volt, a Chevy Volt. Oh, okay. Yeah. So okay. it's a hybrid, and uh, it's wonderful. I love it. Yeah? It's like my adult car. <laughs> it does stuff. It has a backup camera. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's neat. So. Yeah, because I've, I've, I've sworn up and down that, like, when we're ready to get another car, the only option is electric. Yeah. And I'm very into cars, uh -huh. so it's probably going to be one that goes very fast. Oh, because. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, then you want the Tesla probably. I am 100% getting a ludicrous. <laughs> Or all the new trucks coming out. So so we'll see what happens. My goal is to have like just an electric fleet one day just because, you know. Just because. Just because. Yeah. Because yeah. I love cars and trucks. I always have. 
My dad didn't have any boys, so I was like the surrogate son. Uh-huh. So like that was our thing. Okay. So, yeah. I'm just gonna have all of them. And then I already told my dad. Because he's going to get a brand new Corvette sometime. And I'm okay. like, I'm going to get my Tesla and I'm going to race you. We're going to see how that goes. Yeah. Well, the Tesla's supposed to be quick. So. Oh, the new Plaid. They've been putting on drag strips and stuff. And, like, they're okay. freaking crushing cars. Just, okay. Well, then, mm-hmm. it's really about the character of the driver that will determine who wins. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, God. Me and my dad against each other. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> oh, that'll be so fun. Oh, oh, great. Well, let's get to you. Okie dokie. Yeah. So one, where I really love to start on these is to really paint a picture of who you are. Take me back in time to your childhood. What was it like for you growing up and where did you grow up? I mean, all those things. Okay. Uh, so I grew up in hygiene, Colorado, which some people know where that is. Some people don't. But uh, basically, when I grew up there, it was farms and, and one sort of dead end road. And we were on the dead end road. And um, my brother is 13 years older than me. So basically, he went off to college and I was kind of raised as an only kid. Mm. So I spent a lot of time in hygiene, Colorado, just sort of outside. And I was, you know, it was that kind of time and that sort of place where your parents just said, Get out of the house. Just go. (laughs) Come back when you're hungry. Don't get in any trouble, right? Don't play in the ditch. So, so yeah, uh, that's kind of my formative memory of growing up is just sort of being outside. We had horses just hanging around with the dog and the cat, and they were my best friends. And, um, yeah, I didn't – I had really lovely, good experiences outside as a kid. And – and then after that, uh, you know, when I was, I don't know, 12 or something, John Denver was huge on the radio, right? And you're in Colorado and John Denver's huge on the radio. It starts this whole sort of environmental movement in the 70s in Colorado. And, um, and then there was the, the commercials about littering with the crying Native American man. All of those things just all happened in that real formative sort of time of my life. And I became pretty much fascinated with animals and and being outside. And then I became an angsty teenager. (laughs) And I left that all behind. (laughs) Oh, like running out of your small hometown? Oh, yeah. Just get me out of Colorado as fast as possible. Um, And, yeah, I went off to California to study radio and TV broadcasting and uh, determined relatively quickly that it was hyper competitive, mm-hmm. that I didn't really like the people that were in my field. They would hide textbooks, library books, right? If you went into the library looking for something, you would never find it because other people in the class would hide it. Right? What? Why? Because it's you want to be the star, right? Mm-hmm. You want to be the person on top uh, of that field. So I dropped out of college. To my parents' chagrin, <laughs> I worked in a deli for a year and um, decided after working in a deli for a year that I didn't want to do that for the rest <laughs> of my life. And then um, decided I would go back to college at San Diego State. And I just picked up, back then you used to get the course catalogs and they were paper, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just picked up the course catalog and I started in the A's and went all the way through to the end. 
just reading the classes in every single major until I found one that seemed fun. Like, right? I, I could do that class. I could yeah. do that class. I could do that class. And that was Park and Rec Administration. Mm-hmm. And um, that got me back sort of into the outdoor field. And I discovered kind of within that that I didn't want to be a park ranger because I didn't want to wear a gun and I didn't want to do that. But <laughs> I enjoyed the interpretation piece of it. But not the law enforcement side right, of it. Right, right. And so, yeah, then I started studying environmental ed and went on to graduate school. But it was just sort of, yeah, that's how I got where I am. It's just sort of doors that opened at different times. And um, But I really do feel like that, you know, that fundamental piece is that, that early education of just really informal education of just being outside and feeling very comfortable there. Just really know? bonding with yeah. nature. Yeah. Yeah, we had these incredible lilac bushes in the backyard. You could, as a kid, you could hide in them, right? <laughs> they smelled awesome, and it was just a really fun place to sort of go and be alone and, you know, do that kind of stuff. So Play and yeah. anything else at that yeah. time. Yeah. So what did you end up studying? Because I saw you, you even got your PhD. So what was your path during the, down that? Yeah. So as I said, I started in Park and Rec Administration and got my BA, and then I um, – Here's here's a door opening. Um, my advisor, as when I was finishing up my bachelor's, said, "What are you going to do?" And I said, "I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> no plans. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm 23. I have no clue what I want to do. You know, and not quite 23, but anyway." Um, and he said, "Well, you know, I have the person that I write all my articles with." is an advisor for a master's program in, um, at university of Minnesota. I think you'd fit really nicely into his program. And I think you'd do really well getting a master's. And I had never thought about furthering my education past getting that first degree. Right. So I looked at that as an opportunity and I met, Um, Leo McAvoy, who became my advisor at University of Minnesota. And um, yeah, I went there. They had a degree in, well, it was leisure studies at that time. But basically within that, I focused on environmental education, sort of interpretation stuff. And um, finished up my master's. And once again, somebody said, this time, Leo, what are you going to (laughs) do? Oh, He said, well, you know, you could stick around for another couple of years and get your PhD. Well, that seems easy. <laughs> I already, you know, yeah. I already know how to study. I know how to take a test. Mm-hmm. Um, I know the program. I know the people. Uh, and I had a teaching assistantship, which I just loved because I love teaching. And then, yeah, so I stuck around for another two years and kind of honed in on environmental ed and, uh, you know, environmental education in outdoor settings, not in the classroom, but in camp type settings. And um, I even took and developed a computer learning tool that you could use in an environmental ed camp when it was too cold or rainy to be outside, but also to connect to those kids that were much more interested in technology than Mm. they were in, say, you know, learning about trees and yeah, so like Bonnie or something like yeah. that. Like, I don't actually care about yeah. this. <laughs> yeah, so I, um, so that's what I did. I hung around and I, um, I got my PhD and then 
through that process, learned that I didn't want to be a college professor, which is what I thought I wanted to do. But I didn't like the world of publish or perish Mm -hmm. or um, sort of the tenure process Mm -hmm. didn't sit well for me. And I started working. um, I got a job running an environmental education camp, but basically it was tied to a university. And I was teaching undergrad students how to teach sixth graders and younger Mm -hmm. students. Mm -hmm. Right. So Mm -hmm. I was teaching the instructors. And that was a lot of fun. And then, um, anyway, I started volunteering for a nonprofit at that point that focused on renewable energy. And I really loved the nonprofit world. I discovered I really liked the sort of the, the flexibility within the nonprofit world to just be your own boss and make your own hours and, uh, you know, put a stamp on something with your personality. Mm. Whereas in the university world, it's all about the administration and what they want you to do. Right. So anyway, I I took a job with this nonprofit and then sort of like the rest is history. I've just sort of sat in the nonprofit seat for years and years. (laughs) (laughs) And I love it. I mean, it's a great, it's a, if you can find a good match, it's a great place to be. Mm -hmm. Um, that was awesome. You just like answered like so many of my questions all at once. Cause that was my big thing. Cause you've been in nonprofit, especially like nonprofit leadership for like a very long time now. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So how did it come to be that you came to Rocky mountain? Wow. So it sounds like where, so where was this? You were still in Minnesota when all of this happened. So like, what was your journey through all that? Yeah. So, um, the first job that I took after finishing my PhD was actually in Wisconsin. Okay. So, right there. Boop, boop. <laughs> yeah, right. Again, another, it was just an easy transition. Um, transitioned over to this this job at the University of Wisconsin Stevens Point and did that for a couple of years. Um, and then, yeah, uh, started working with this renewable energy group. And, um, okay, there's a line from a Grateful Dead song that I think just sums up my life. Do it. I love, <laughs> oh my God, I love Grateful Dead. Okay. It's, ages me, but it's also, anyway, it comes through my head a lot. And basically the line is a bus came by and I got on and that's where it all began. Mm-hmm. And that's, that, beautiful. that's how I feel my life has gone. Right. I volunteered for this nonprofit and then their executive director quits and then I'm on their board and I like doing that work. So I become the next person. I mean, I was able to apply for the job and it, you know, it, it was a natural fit for Mm -hmm. me. And then I worked at that nonprofit for almost for 20 years, I guess. We built an incredible education um, building and center where we were teaching technicians how to install renewable energy systems. Wow. Yeah. So this was like 20 years ago when this started. Oh, yeah. You were like well before everything was Oh, I can only, you probably have stories for days. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and it was just, it was a load of fun. And I met the coolest people and I had really, really great experiences with that and loved it and probably would still be sitting in that seat because sort of this inertia takes over your mm. life after a while, right? Like, this is what I do. This is who I am. This is my identity. Um, but... My husband burned out on his job, and it was at the beginning of the Obama administration, 
And there were these jobs available out here in Colorado at the Renewable Energy Lab. And he said, I'm going to apply for one of these jobs in Colorado. And I had no intention of leaving Wisconsin, Mm. but I said, go ahead. You'll never get it. You're not qualified. What was he doing at the time? (laughs) He was a public defender. So he's an attorney and he's applying for these jobs in renewable energy. And he actually had a good background for it because we lived off grid while we were in Wisconsin for all those years. So he lived with renewables and he knew it. He'd also taught for me part time as a consul- and worked as a consultant on a couple of projects with our nonprofit. Um, and he served on our board of directors. So he wasn't completely. He wasn't completely left field. <laughs> right. But I was like, oh, this is a federal government job. There is. Sure. Go for it. There's no way. And then, of course, he got the job. And um, and, you know, I realized that we went to graduate school because I got into graduate school. And so he went there. We moved to Wisconsin because I got a job in Wisconsin. So he came here. I'm like, well, I guess it's your turn. And mm-hmm. I could think of a lot worse places to go than Colorado. And <laughs> back home. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, he took the job and um, we, you know, eventually sold the place in Wisconsin and moved out here. And I took another job for about a year working with another organization in renewable energy and uh, it required me to travel back and forth to New York. And oh, that's a lot. I was, I was just miserable and I wasn't, I wasn't the ED anymore. And I, I didn't like the leadership of the organization and there was nothing I could do about it. And, um, so I started looking at nonprofit jobs again and sort of like when I went through the course catalog, it was like a candy shop. It's like, Oh gosh, here's this one that trains service dogs. Oh my goodness, that would be awesome. And here's, you know, here's this one. And my life opened up again. And um, I really realized that the whole time I worked in renewable energy, I did it for the fuzzy animals, right? I did it to make the world a better place so that we could all live together on this planet. And so it was my chance to work with fuzzy animals. And so um, I applied at Rocky Mountain Wild and it's a long story there too, but, uh, but yeah, I, I eventually got the job and, um, yeah, I haven't looked back, you know, I, it's been great. That's amazing. So let's go, let's go back a little bit. Let's go a few steps back because, um, I guess maybe because I'm recently married or anybody who's going through, I feel mm. like in this field, especially, mm. <sighs> Sometimes it's a little difficult to be in long-term relationships because just to pursue whatever it is that we want, you have to be very open to location. Mm-hmm. So how did that conversation go? Or like, what were the emotions that you went through? Because you were heavily invested. I mean, 20 oh, years, yeah. that's a long time. So how did that conversation go for you to change your mind enough to be like, okay, I'm going to go with you to come to Colorado? How that how that <laughs> <laughs> well, um, gosh, I, you know, well, one is my husband was very unhappy mm. and that doesn't make for a happy relationship. Right. So, I mean, not that we were having marital troubles, but he didn't feel good and he was unhappy and that made me unhappy. And, um, 
you want to be in a happy place with people. So there was, there was that going on. Um, I also had started to realize that, uh, that at my job, I had been sitting there for 20 years. I might've been somewhat complacent in, in some things like, Mm -hmm. you know, I knew, I already knew the answer rather than listening to everybody, like rather than gathering the information and making maybe a new decision about something, I've done all of this already, right? You can't tell me that we should do this because I've already gone down that path and I don't need to know that anymore. So I, I was seeing that pattern within myself. Um, it wasn't an easy decision. And in fact, my husband, Roke, moved out to Colorado for a full year while I stayed in Wisconsin. And we we played it out. You know, mm-hmm. what scenario is going to work for us? Um, are you going to like the job in Colorado? Cause if you don't like it, you know, why least, am I going to leave all, everything we've established? Right. Right. We have a huge garden. We have a house, we have friends, we have community. We better make sure that this is going to kind of work. So we, we tried that out. And at the same time, I, I sort of got to, I had a year to get my head around not doing what I was doing anymore. And, um, it was, it was hard because so much of, as a nonprofit person, so much of your identity is sort of attached to your work. Yes. It's a, it's a labor yeah. of love, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not about the money because none of us make very much money and that's a bad thing. Um, yes, I'm a big advocate for changing that, but yeah, oh, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> I'm with you. Um, but so, yeah, you know, it was, it was a difficult thing, but it was so good. Like it has created within me this space where I am not afraid of change. Like I know that, in fact, I know that life is short and there's a lot of things that I could be doing and I already know how to do this one. Why wouldn't I try to learn how to do something else? Right. You know, otherwise, I mean, I know how people get put in those places where this is home and this is community and I've worked all my life to build community but then you only see that one piece of the world. So you're a little bubble. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I've been really happy with the decision. Mm-hmm. It's been great. That's good. That's yeah. awesome. Like, like I said, it's just so common in our field, you know, it's yeah. just like you have to be willing to move. And I know a lot of people who relationships have ended. And yeah. so I was, I was really curious about that. Like, how did your, I mean, obviously marriage survived. You said my husband, oh. you didn't say my, <laughs> my, my ex. <laughs> oh, you didn't get a divorce through this. So, um, uh, yeah, no, I mean, yeah. I think, you know, you know how it is. got to establish your priorities right. and work is just work. Uh, if you've got a relationship that's worth fighting for, it's worth fighting for. Right. right. So I don't know. Right. Yeah. It's great. So, so tell me about this story. How did Rocky Mountain Wild happen? Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, get your refill. Let me know. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, okay. So I applied for the position at Rocky Mountain Wild and it was really an interesting interview process for me because the job was in many ways somewhat similar to what I was currently doing in that Um, Rocky Mountain Wild had a staffed office here in Denver. They had a second staffed office over in Durango. And my other nonprofit, the Midwest Renewable Energy Association, had a staffed office in central Wisconsin, but one in Milwaukee. So I was used to sort of managing a two two office 
sort of situation and trying to keep those things connected and, you know, all of that. So that part was exciting. And I had that background and um, the budget was near about the same as what I had been managing. And um, so I was really like feeling pretty good about this transition. And they, yeah, offered me the job. I accepted. It was all great, except that I have um, a two-week trip planned in Alaska. And so I want to go do my Alaska trip and start when I come back. Nope. No problem. You know, that is great. We love people who love the outdoors. Go do Alaska. Come back. I got back from Alaska and there was a phone message on my phone from the president of the board. And he said, Terry, hi, this is, uh, this is Bart. I need you to call me when you get a chance. Mm. And oh, I could just, Oh God, that's exactly it. I'm like, okay, this isn't good. <laughs> and, you know, I kind of steeled myself for it, thought about different things that could, they could say, whatever. And, um, I called Bart and in the two weeks that I had been away, the organization basically discovered that they didn't have any resources, that they were overtaxed, um, and that, um, that, that the, when the last person had left, nobody fully understood the financial situation oh, of the organization. No. So while I was gone, they had closed the Durango office. They had let go about 50% of the staff at the Denver office and had taken one of the staff members and basically put them in charge of the organization and they had no money to hire me. And they really just sort of didn't know what was going to happen, right? Like, are we going to get through this? We don't know if we're going to get through this. It'd be really un fair to bring in an ED under these completely different circumstances than two weeks ago when you, <laughs> when accept, you were hired. Right. Um, and I really just don't know where it came from, but somewhere inside of me, this voice just came out and I said, well, Bart, you don't know me very well. <laughs> I am not taking no for an answer. I've already spent two weeks in Alaska getting my head around that this is mine and I'm not going anywhere. So starting next week, I will be volunteering with you guys um, until we figure out what the budget situation is. And hopefully by the time I'm done volunteering, there will be enough money in the bank account so that you guys can hire me. He was like, well, let me talk to the board. <laughs> you didn't expect that at all, did you? No, no. Uh -uh. That's I was amazing. I wasn't sure I expected it either. <laughs> But anyway, it all eventually worked out. And um, yeah, I volunteered for a couple of months. We figured out how to make budget cuts. We figured out that we weren't going to be the organization that we were before. And in fact, we condensed down to about six or seven staff members at any given time. Um, and we condensed our workload and what we focus our priorities on. But we were able to make it all happen. And the organization is still here. And uh, yeah. I, and most of the team from that original six is still with me. So, wow. Yeah. That yeah. is amazing. Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> at the time, I'm not sure my husband thought it was so amazing. <laughs> he 
you're what? <laughs> you're saying what? I am not going to interview for another job. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that's crazy. So what year was this? What year did all this happen? Uh, okay, I'm really bad at years. I mean, in general. Um, let's see. This is uh, 2021, right? Yes. <laughs> We've made it. We've made it. I think it was, a, it was about 2011. Yeah, it was almost 10 years ago. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And so from then, I guess, well, I guess now it just makes sense. Well, then what is Rocky Mountain Wild? What is that you all do and everything? Sure. Um, well, we work to protect, basically work to protect biodiversity. Uh, in Colorado, we focus on the, uh, an area called the Southern Rockies ecoregion, mm. um, which goes a little bit to the north into Wyoming and a little bit to the south into New Mexico and a little bit over into Utah, but it's primarily Colorado. And we... Um, we try to focus on the species that other bigger organizations tend to overlook. Uh, and we try to uh, develop some long lasting solutions to, uh, to what's happening with biodiversity in Colorado. And so we have a couple of, we have three tools, three or four tools in our toolbox. Um, one is a, we have a staff attorney and sometimes when agencies like, you know, Forest Service or U.S. Fish and Game don't follow the rules that are there to protect biodiversity, we will engage in legal action. Don't do that a lot. We kind of consider it a last resort, but it's there. It's sort of our, we call it our hammer. <laughs> and then our, then our other tools are like the screwdriver and, you know, the other things. Um, we also have a... a GIS department. So we do a lot of mapping um, because you can't save species if you don't know where they are, right? right. So um, we have an awesome uh, GIS team uh, that puts together great maps and we tend to screen things against where endangered and threatened species are, where wildlife movement corridors are, those mm -hmm. kinds of things. And then I have two biologists on the team uh, they are really focused on both habitat connectivity um, and saving specific species. And more recently, we've moved sort of into doing a lot more citizen science projects or community. Love it. Community science. All about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, again, you know, our thought being that as a small team and biodiversity being such a big issue, there's no way we can do this on our own. So community science falls very naturally into what we do. That's awesome. Um, and then my last tool, which really cannot be overlooked, is our communications person. Um, they do a wonderful job getting our message out there, bringing new people to us, uh, crafting the tone of who we are. And that is a role that I feel like was overlooked before I came on. Mm -hmm. But then again, communications has changed so much in 10 years. But um, it's very important for bringing in that next generation of conservationists to help us with our work. So Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, especially, I don't know if it's lucky or unlucky. I mean, there is a lot of biodiversity issues here, but... This is a more conservation-minded state mm -hmm. as opposed to some of the other ones that are in the range. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so I'm sure that, like you said, community science just fit naturally yeah. with what you do. Yeah. So what are those projects? What are some of these species that you focus on that some of the organizations aren't? Sure. So one of my favorite projects is our Front Range Pika Project, which its name is being transitioned over to the Colorado Pika Project right now. Uh, so I may use either of those. Interchangeable. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but the Pika Project is basically we monitor the health of different Pika populations around Colorado. Uh, people help us by going to some of our long-range research sites so that we, over time, can see how the population is doing over time. Um, and the the basic premise is, is that this is a species that's going to be impacted by climate change because they have such a very narrow window of temperatures that they can survive in. They need really thick snowpack in the winter to provide them with insulation. They need the summers not to be too hot or they burn up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're sort of like a harbinger of what's happening with climate change in our high alpine areas. And there are species that other big organizations don't necessarily pay any attention to because they're not on the endangered species list. They're, but also because we actually don't know much about them. So community science is a great way for us to be able to sort of cover all of these sites every year, year after year, and gather this long-term data uh, w- that we'd never be able to get with, you know, just my biologist, right? So right. it's a it's a perfect project. Um, and, of course, pika are amazingly cute. Oh, my God. They're, like, the cutest little fluffy I, things of all time. I, uh, I, I should have brought one of my stuffed pikas with me because <laughs> it's like, oh, look at that. It's so cute. So cute. Um, so it's a really good project. On the other end of the spectrum, we're just starting a community science project um, called Colorado Bat Watch. And while I think bats are cute, apparently I'm maybe in the minority. (laughs) Um, But our idea with Colorado Bat Watch is that we actually don't know much about bats in Colorado, where, where they're roosting, where they live, how their species are doing how populations are doing, and what the impact of white-nose syndrome is going to be Mm. when it gets to Colorado. And we now have documented cases of white-nose syndrome in every state around us, but none yet in Colorado. Wow. Um, So our project there will be identifying unknown roost sites Mm. uh, in Colorado where bats are roosting, and then being able to send community scientists back to those roost sites every year to find out if the bats are back, are they there, do we see evidence of white-nose syndrome. And all of that information can then be um, given to the Colorado Parks and Wildlife who are actually in charge of, mo- of managing the species, right? And it's a project that they could never do within their budget and their staffing. And one, of course, that we couldn't do, you know, on our own either. So it's, again, it's a really incredible way to use volunteers um, to get folks out there. And, you know, on a personal note, I just feel like it's one of those places where you can create, again, that sort of that empathy and that caring for a species um, and that next generation of volunteers and people who are going to care for these animals, you know, on this planet. So 
I, I love those projects. We do have a third one. Go for it. Yes. <laughs> you've got you've got me talking about things I know about, which is myself and our programs. Well, I um, figured you would. <laughs> um, our third project is uh, we've been working for a number of years to get some wildlife crossing structures built over I-70 up on East Vale Pass. And East Vale Pass is this incredible environment where you have forest service land on both sides of I-70. And you have wilderness areas on um, both sides of I-70. And there is nothing that breaks up that whole movement corridor except for I-70, which is, as you know, four to six lanes of speeding traffic and concrete barriers and all kinds of things that 24-7 noise and light that keep wildlife from trying to get across that road. So... Our community science project up there, and I should say that we do this in partnership with the Denver Zoo as well as the PICA project, um, we had we set up every year, our biologist Paige goes up and she sets up wildlife cameras to monitor the wildlife in that area that are either interacting with or not interacting with the road, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. what we find is a lot of animals don't even get close to the road because it's just too scary. Yeah, too much noise, too much movement. Um, but we've been monitoring wildlife up there for over five years now, and all of that information will be used to help to develop the crossing structures if we ever find the funding to get them built across the road there. And already that data has come in handy in that we recently completed a feasibility study for those crossing structures, and that data helps to determine sort of what size structure you need. Um, if, it's a, if it's going under the freeway, how tall of an opening does it need to be? How wide does it need to be? Because we know that some species will really need that eyesight to get through a crossing structure. I mean, it's like, like a moose or something. Yeah. Some of the bigger species yeah. that are, would be using yeah. something like that. Right. And so our, the data from the feasibility study really helped to sort of inform those initial drawings of what the crossing structures up there are going to be like, because mm -hmm. we know the wildlife that's there. Um, and then when we get funding for building these, um, we'll also be able to use that data to, to, to monitor how successful they are. So we've known that we've had these animals on either side of the road. Do we see them crossing? You know, those, those types of things. And so um, every year, community scientists help us to set up and maintain those wildlife cameras. And it's a lot of equipment to haul into the woods and set up. And um, they're, they're a great, great resource to help us figure all that out. Yes. I mean, having one biologist, like, good luck doing uh, all this. Uh, <laughs> I, I have gone up and helped a couple of times. And um, the equipment that Paige hauls around is so heavy. <laughs> and, uh, we actually did an outreach event um, where I had her bring all the equipment in and it became a station where you could like try on Paige's backpack, oh my right? Gosh, really? and, and, an experience. And, and feel what, what it's like. And now imagine hiking at altitude, right? With that on. So, um, so yeah, community scientists are very helpful in that project as well. Mm. So what's the hope for that? So it's, I keep hearing like, if we get funding, so mm. <laughs> where is that funding coming from? Like how's this, like how's the lobbying advocating side of it going to? Well, we are still in the 
this process, this project has been rethought of, thought and rethought of numerous times in the 10 years that I've been here based on who's at the helm of the federal government, Department of Transportation and all these other things. But um, right now, we have our eye on the stimulus funding um, and particularly transportation stimulus funding that could be coming to the state of Colorado. And we're trying to eke out a little bit of that to finish the final engineering on those structures so that they're shovel ready. And once they're shovel ready, I think they're going to be so much easier to find funding for. You'll have mm. we'll have the ability to bring in private donors and and public donors, and um, Colorado Department of Transportation will have a plan that they can use to find federal funding. But we're kind of in that limbo place where we still need these structures, the final engineering on these structures, so that it's a real project and not just a good thing that we think of. Um, for biology and for biodiversity, but it's got real teeth. Could it. a private someone, or does it have to be government oh. level? No, it doesn't have to be government level at all. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, the wildlife crossing structures that were built on State Highway 9 out by Kremlin, mm -hmm. do you yeah, know those? Yeah, I've Kremlin. seen those. Mm -hmm. um, that was, the, what got that thing going was that the owner of Blue Valley Ranch, who lives right there, put in something like the first you know, third of the funding. And then it was too big of a pot for anybody else to turn their back on, right? Then the county jumped in with some money and uh, other private donors, were, donations were raised. And um, and yeah, they found the funding to make that project happen. So we're, I'm a little bit ahead of the story in that we're working with a communications team right now to come up with our messaging and help us figure out the exact process of fundraising for this. Mm -hmm. But we have this communications team that has been, um, they're awesome. They put together the uh, P-22 project in LA, the wildlife the, the wildlife crossing for the mountain lion, mm, the mountain lion yes, crossing. Yes, yes, Huge project. And these are the guys, the team, not guys, team, that came up with the... Um, with all of the marketing and the voices and the messaging for that. Wow, so um, really, that was nationwide. Yeah. Yeah, so we're it's amazing. We're really hopeful that we've got with them on board, we will be able to make some progress on this finally. That's exciting. Because I mean I've been here for almost six years now and uh -huh. I've been hearing about at least the, the hint of that. I mean, also anybody who's traveled across the country or through Colorado, you've seen this area. Like you know mm -hmm. exactly where this is. And it is, it's loud. I mean, it's like 70, 75 through there. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, it's 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 needed so bad. And then if anybody's been to Breckerville, you've seen all the big wildlife, you've seen the moose, you've seen the big horn, and they don't have any way to get across. Yep. And it's right in the middle of Colorado. It's not like it's like the outskirts, which even then, yeah. But like this is like the heart of the Rockies. I know. I and I think one of the things that's that, that gets really exciting for me is that one of the crossing structures will be a wildlife bridge. So there'll be two underpasses and one wildlife bridge. And the wild That's so cool. <laughs> I know. It'll be the highest wildlife bridge in the nation. Um, and then every day, 22,000 people will drive underneath it. Think of the educational opportunity that we have right there of 
really talking about habitat connectivity, why it's important. Why would Colorado put all of this money into a bridge that people can't use? Well, because we all use the natural resources. And one of the reasons you're here on this road is because of the wildlife. And so this is our commitment in Colorado to wildlife crossing structures. I think it could just be this incredible symbol of who we are as a state. Yes. So there you go. You got my best pitch. Yes. Right. <laughs> I love it. I love it. We got it all excited. Where's pitch night? Let's go. Ah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was awesome. Um, and this is just a side note. This is like a personal thing that as I've gotten older and I developed, you know, I've just gotten more mature. I always used to see money as like the bad thing. Like if money's the, you're evil if you're rich, you know, because yeah. I think going up through nonprofits, you get this very much just this mentality, just not like pounded in you, but kind of, of like, we're doing the good work. Everybody else is doing the bad work. And I've just started to, my mind has started to shift so much about this because there's so many days where I was like, if I, if I got to the point where I was making that much in, income, hmm. how much good could I do? Uh-huh. You know, where you can flip, completely flip it on the other side. It's like, I don't need much money to live. Trust me. I've been in this field for a long time. I clearly don't need much money to be fine. And so it's just like, oh my God, like, what if I was able to make a million dollars a year? How many projects could I fund? And right. like just having that different mindset of it being flipped on its own head. Ugh. It's like, no, you don't have to work $12 an hour. Like what if somebody, or, um, I recently listened to a very good, uh, Sam Harris podcast and it was uh-huh. about doing good. Uh-huh. And that's what they were talking about on there as well. Just like 10% of everything they're going to be making from then on for the rest of their lives are going back right. into these charities and stuff. I'm like, Ooh. like, this is amazing. Like, yeah. We just had that one person that just listens to your story and be like, how much you got? How many million? Here's a check. Like yeah. I needed to give this away because I need to go do oh, good I- in the world. You know, I think if that happened, I'd find a way to, even if that person wanted the recognition, we could name the bridge after them. Yeah, I wouldn't care. Like, (laughs) I would put it in, well, not LED lights because we need to make sure it's quiet. (laughs) I almost said LED. No, maybe during the day, whatever you want. I don't care. I just want your money. (laughs) Yeah, philanthropy is an interesting thing, isn't it? And um, Yes. um, I, I... I have sort of a love-hate relationship with with that whole concept. I same. I love the people. I I, I love people who donate at five dollars, at ten dollars, at a thousand dollars. They're they're all showing their commitment to this. Um, but we have a system. Oh boy, here we go. Getting into nonprofits. But we have. Let's a, get into it. I we mean. have a system where we rely on nonprofit organizations to solve some of the biggest problems yeah. that we have as a country. And yeah. how do we do that? By practically begging for money. By all the time sending, you know, putting <laughs> together bake sales, basically, right? And I just, I there just has to be another way. Right. And I'm I'm not the futuristic thinker and I can't really tell you what that is, but it feels to me like our priorities are really messed up. Mm-hmm. But uh, it is the world that I work in. So right at the you moment. You see it like yeah. every single day. Yeah. No, I completely agree. I think it's pretty exciting that there is this um, movement now going on with like social businesses, like mm-hmm. socially conscious businesses. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing more and more. I mean, it's. 
my eyes were really open when I worked for NatHab, and that was the first for-profit that I worked for, uh-huh. which their business was ran so well that they were able to donate so much of their money yeah. who WWF was their partner. And so um, that was the first time I was like, oh, so you're not all devils. Because like, <laughs> uh-huh. that's what I thought. I mean, I was in zoos for a very long time mm-hmm. and other nonprofits where it's just like, oh, there we go. You know, and that was the first time like, huh? So, I mean, their number one objective was to make a significant profit, but that was because their main goal was to put people in the wild to, so that they could get greater empathy so that they could donate to these other organizations. Right. And that was the first time that my mind had been like, oh, Uh okay. Okay. I'm still wrapping my mind around this stuff. And so that's why I love, I love both worlds. Like I've right. seen both worlds. I've seen the good and the bad of both worlds of nonprofit and for-profits. And so, yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And I think that maybe is sort of like the first step in, in reforming all of this is really blurring those lines mm-hmm. somehow, right? Like businesses aren't just about taking resources and not giving anything back. And that gets sort of close to being a charity at some level, right? Mm -hmm. And nonprofits shouldn't be in just the role of depending upon the kindness of other people to do the really hard work. I mean, nonprofits feed people, they clothe people, they... Um, you know, they do social justice issues. It's like all of these things that move us ahead come. Okay. There are some federal programs that do the same thing, but nonprofits are there regardless of who's sitting at the top of the pyramid in DC, right? We continue the work even when we're not supported on the federal level. So there just needs to be, sort of this blurring of philanthropy and business and nonprofits and kind of like put it on the snow globe, shake it up and come up with something that's a little healthier for all of us. Yes. I'm really curious to see what happens with this like social business movement. Uh Um, Because I mean, that's my plan like with the podcast because I love this so much and I'm like, when it gets to a point where it is making income, the only reason why I'd be doing that is so that I could then give a significant portion of that back into wildlife conservation. Sure. Yeah. It's like, so when you monetize and, and like when more businesses go into that with that mindset, mm-hmm. like if every single business, every single startup or whatever out there that's being created right now, if they like that was in their initial plan, their uh-huh. initial business plan. Oh, just imagine yeah. what can happen. Yeah. Yeah. And I, 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 we put a lot of emphasis on consumers driving that, but um, consumers have a lot of opportunity to sort of drive that to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's the whole 1% for the planet network. You can, right. you can find businesses that have that built into their business model and, um, I usually find that when I work with those businesses, their people are happier. They are good people to work with. All of that feels really comfortable and natural and like the way to go. And uh, my shameless plug right now for Patagonia is that they've been doing this since the beginning. It has right. been in their business model since the beginning that um, 
we protect the planet. Our clothes may cost more, but we've done it right. We're doing it for the environment. And uh, they, they're still here, right? It's, it's a model that can work. Yeah. So oh, that's such a great example I just brought up. That's such a great example. They're, they're good people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because you see it too. I, I, they did get a little political on this last campaign, which is fine. But the fact that, that they were so on point with their mission mm-hmm. and like their values that they mm-hmm. were willing to put their own reputation on the line mm-hmm. by saying what they did. And I highly respect that. I mean, I highly, no matter what side anybody's on, I respect when anybody's willing to do that for what they believe in and their values. So yeah, I definitely adds off to Patagonia, especially now that they have their, um, their used line. Uh Cause you can even go in and get stuff fixed Uh, too. Right. Like they're very like, keep this for 20 years. We want you to keep this for 20 years. Right. Yeah. I cannot, I have one, one coat that They've actually fixed for me like three times. Because <laughs> apparently I tend to run into things with my left shoulder, but um, just straight ribbon. Yeah. And at one point, um, the manager said, Well, you know, maybe you want to look at a new coat. I'm like, uh uh-uh, uh, I'm in here for the long haul, baby. You're fixing this again. Let's do it. Until it completely disintegrates. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, they're uh, I, I I really appreciate the business model, not to Again, do a commercial plug for anybody, but ah, they're, okay. they're the ones I'm closest to. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Do you, however, if any other business wants to become this close to me, yes. I, I, <laughs> no. Who wants a partner with Rocky Mountain Wild? Let's go. Hook you up. So. Oh, that would be awesome. Or even just think of that. If, like, there was um, an organization out there where it's like, we don't necessarily have the um, time or efforts to start like a whole wing of our business that's just for good. Mm-hmm. If you just make it super easy and partner with somebody else, like mm-hmm. I don't know, X percent of our proceeds are directly benefit Rocky Mountain Wild. And yeah. this is what they do and why we love them and why they're so awesome. And uh, everybody just wins. I yeah. was like, how many, I'm, I'm a, I am a big picture thinker person. And so I like see those like connections. I'm like, how many ways because then that is also marketing. I mean, I don't yeah. care if someone's just like, I'm doing this to look good. I don't give a shit. If that means that you are funding an amazing nonprofit because uh-huh. you just want to make sure that your name looks good, I don't freaking care. Like, I'm, I'm over that stuff now. I'm like, are you, how many do, how many are you doing? I'm like, whatever. Like you said, I will put your name on that bridge. Like, <laughs> I know. It's a, it's a weird place to go, but, um, yeah, I, I think I've, I've never been a real good purist uh, on anything. I I tend to see the world as shades of gray. Yeah. Right? Yes. And, um, and that black and white thinking can be really detrimental to sort of helping people come along on any journey. Yes. Yes. I just... I'm going to let this it for a second. Because that's exactly what I say. Uh-huh. I used to be very black and white. Back in my young, ignorant days, super black and white. If you did this, then you're the devil. If you did this, then you're the devil. If you did this, then you're just ruining the world. You're the devil. And like, and I'm like, wow, this is not as simple at all. Well, but don't you think that some of that is just growing up? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I'm very, yeah, like, 
Probably so, your version of hygiene. I grew up in that in like Southern Ohio. Yeah. So very small town. And it's I, very much this or the side. I think we all go through that in our lives mm. when your uh, your brain is evolving. It, it's literally physically changing as you get older. You're and you get to this point where. You're super idealistic about what is right and what is wrong, and you know the answers. Right. And everybody before you was wrong, and everybody after you will be wrong, too, because (laughs) you're right. Because you know the answers. And the longer you play on the planet, and the more people you meet, the more you realize that that's just not the case. You're we're all just part of the same web of life and and I get stuff wrong sometimes. And if I didn't, I wouldn't be learning. Right. Right? So anyway. Uh I think I think that's it. I think we all go through that and hopefully we all get to a place that's a little bit beyond that. And yet like Patagonia, you still hold those same values. Like the value is, yeah. Like, well, this is this is our standing principle. Yeah. But how exactly those are played out, yeah, might change as I mean, I mean, how much has changed in twenty years already? Like, I mean, how much has changed in the last eighteen months? Uh, good point. <laughs> um, that to me is amazing. I don't know. I mean, it feels like. There's a whole group of people that think we're just going back to the way things were. And that's not what the data is showing. Mm-mm. There are more people quitting their jobs than there ever have been. Uh, people people t- kind of tasted something different and they want something different. And, right. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Rocky Mountain Wild has been, we've worked from home for years. And so that part of the pandemic wasn't new to us, right? Mm-hmm. We all had our home offices set up. And, but I could think back to when we all first started working from home and how hard that was for some people. You know, you don't know if you have the internet that's going to handle it. You don't know. And now everybody's got a taste of, well, not everybody. Some people, bless them, were on the front line and they were out there and they made sure we had food and they worked in restaurants. Well, not well, they did takeout in restaurants mm-hmm. and they worked in grocery stores and they were first responders and they were nurses. And those people didn't have the luxury of working from home. But a big portion of the population did. And now they want to do it at least once a week, maybe twice, maybe all the time. Maybe forever in a day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Some people it didn't work out for. Some people needed exterior motivations. But um but yeah, I think the world changed a lot in the last 18 months. I believe it. I think it showed, I mean, I know it definitely changed my life quite significantly. Yeah. Well, you made some career changes. And yeah. Some put it, you know, forced <laughs> upon. But you know, sometimes it just takes life to kick you in the freaking rear and be like, okay, stop being complacent. Your bus came by. Yeah. Oh, my bus came by. And I like had to like, I mean, it was zooming and I like grabbed it by the side. Like, don't leave. That's exactly what happened. My bus did come by. Oh my god, I love it. What grateful song is that? Grateful Dead. Uh, bus came by, and I was again. I don't. You know, I don't know the title. Okay, I'm gonna just text me because I'm like, I kind of need to listen to this. I feel like this is also my life song. All all of my friends who are in the Grateful Dead were just shocked to death that I didn't know the name of that song. I did just put you on the spot. (laughs) 
I'm really bad at that as well. It's like, oh my God, I've been listening to this song since I was two years old. I don't remember who this band is. Leonard Skinner, I'm so sorry. Like, you know? I think I've been kicked out of a club, but we'll see. We'll see. They might accept me back. They have to. They're old hippies. Oh, exactly. They have to. It's like, oh, just, just get out. Come drink some wine. Yeah, today. here we'll I go. We'll be good. Yeah. We'll be good. Um... Oh my gosh, that was great. That was a, that was a great. But yeah, I feel like this people that song. And I'm like, I feel like this is exactly what's happening in my life, too. I don't know. We put that out of the camera. Okay. That's <laughs> I'm a little bit more myself. A little bit more wine. This is really good. It's yeah. Perfect on this 98 degree day. It's lovely. Oh, nice. So let's get back to Rocky Mountain um, Wild because there is a very cool project that. One of your former employees actually came and spoke on mm. um, one of my coffee talks years mm -hmm. ago. And this concept of this project blew my freaking mind. And I was like, this is like one of the coolest things I've ever heard anybody do. So I know you know what I'm talking yeah. about. So like, <laughs> just go down, tell, share with everybody what this project was and why it's so freaking cool. Okay. Okay. Uh <laughs> All right, so the project is the Wild Eye 70 Audio Tour. And, ah, oh boy, right when, probably in the first couple of years that I started working at Rocky Mountain Wild, um, I, we, we, we drove up I-70 to go look at the site where we want to build these wildlife crossing structures. And I had this incredible opportunity to do that with our biologist. And she was able to point things, point to things outside of the window that, you know, I'm an environmental educator. I'm, I noticed the world outside, but I never would have seen these things. Never. Like, for example, how, how the different, how we go through different elevations and the, and we go from montane forest up to alpine forest and what that means for different animals and what mm. species are there. And I just came away with this whole different understanding of what was going on in one, Colorado mountains, but two, along the I-70 corridor. And why this project for building these wildlife crossing structures was actually really important. Because it wasn't like a fun, floofy makes us feel good right, idea. It's like, right. actually, this yeah, is important. This is important. And so I had, I've always, I said in the back of my head, and it sat there for a long time, wouldn't it be cool if everybody could drive up the corridor with a biologist. What if, what if Paige could go with everybody? All twenty-two thousand people that go down that road every day. Um, so that project just sort of sat around in the back of my head for a really long time, several years. Um, and then, speaking of good companies, uh, a company called Lush Cosmetics. Oh yeah. Uh, came to us and said, look, we're, we're, we want to support your organization. If you have a project that kind of fits within sort of our goals and our mission, we make you our charity pot, you know, uh, charity for the year. And I pitched this project. I, I said, well, this is what happened to me. I drove with a biologist, yada, yada, yada. And we want to get these structures made. And I really feel like if we could put together an audio tour that everybody could listen to while they drive I-70, we would start to build a lot of um, interest in these projects. And Lush was wonderful. They, they funded us and to put together the audio wow. tour. And I had a really creative staff person at the time uh, who was, you know, really excited about the project. And I, I just sort of 
flung it at them. <laughs> uh, I'm like, okay, here we go. Um, and they they were really good at pulling in, you know, different voices and interviewing people. And so basically what we have is if starting in Golden and going all the way to, um, uh, what's on, let's see, not Glenwood Springs. Yeah, Glenwood Springs. Starting in Golden, going all the way to Glenwood Springs. There are probably 15 different little stories that you can listen to. And we found this incredible technology that lets you listen to it in real time. So if you stop the car and you get back in the car, the technology knows where you're at and won't keep playing about another segment of the roadway that where you don't know what you're looking at. Mm -hmm. And so we in-house just sort of made this thing happen on, on a pretty small budget. But the technology for that audio tour was, was a free platform. And um, we got artists that donated their time and their songs. And uh, we put together interviews with wildlife biologists who donated their time. And now, you know, you download the IZI, Izzy travel app. And you look for the Wild Eye 70 audio tour, hit play when you're in Golden and you'll hear the story. And right before the pandemic, we added even one more story up towards A Basin. So once you get up to the Eisenhower Tunnel, if you travel off the road there and go up to A Basin, there's another story about wow. what they're doing for sustainability at A Basin. So we've got a variety of stories in there. Uh, it's a project that I just, I love it. You know, it's, it's so cool. Yeah, it's really cool. Uh, it needs to be updated. So I have some things that I want to do with it. Hopefully this year, now that we're sort of out of the pandemic and I can feel my creativity sort of coming back around, I starting to like feel alive again and know that we can. <laughs> You're making it through. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, I, I want to update some of the stories because some of the things are old, but um, it's still there. It's still a great listen, even as it is mm -hmm. right now. So, yeah, oh, that's awesome. Because I've never I've never heard of anything like that, which I found was so cool yeah. when I was exposed to the concept. I was like, what? This is the coolest thing. This is so cool. And I know a lot of people in my former office where because, you know, um, Erica, she brought like the uh -huh. like the QR code scanner and yeah. multiple people. Because, you know, the office, they skied everything in the mountains. Right. And so a lot of them listened to the whole thing. And it was, like, very impactful. Like, who would have thunk? Yeah, it's fun. It's the, you know, it's really, it's so interesting because it's just, it's so simple. It's the same technology that uh, backs walking audio tours that you can get in any city around the globe basically right it's like oh yeah we're gonna do the walking tour of london you know and it's exactly the same but as far as i know we might have been the first organization to try it with a car mm. um which has a little bit of a different scale yeah because <laughs> uh, you i one of the things i spent so much time driving the corridor as we were putting this together it's like well what does it do when i'm driving the corridor at the speed limit do I get off, do I get the full story before I bump into the next story, or what happens if I'm going above the speed limit? <laughs> right, my, which is most people, right? Right. So like, okay, I'm gonna break the law here, but I gotta know what this is gonna do, right? So uh, yeah, I drove the corridor a lot. I've listened, I have most of that thing memorized, but and we kind of we kind of went quiet on it 
during the pandemic because well, people were supposed to sort of recreate close to home, right? Mm-hmm. And the last thing we wanted to do was sort of promote this going out and spreading of of pandemic germs. So it's been quiet um, for a while, but I think we'll we'll rev it up this summer and be ready for ski season. Oh, I want to try. I want to try to get it on a couple of the ski buses too. That is so smart. Wouldn't that be fun? Oh, it's not a question. Oh, welcome to Colorado. Here, learn what you're driving through. Yes. Yeah. That's that's brilliant. That's brilliant. And all those all those like shuttles that go mm-hmm. back and forth too. Mm-hmm. There's so many public transportation yep. or even private transportation vehicles that all they're doing is taking people to the slopes. That's right. it. Right. Right. So you can sit and you can listen to your music or you can learn something about where you're driving through. So. Right. Right. Either your headphones could be in or they could be out. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll see. That would be amazing. Yeah. It's oh a, my God. it's a fun it's a fun project. That's so cool. Yeah. I was like, I wanted to make sure you got a chance to talk Thank about you. it. Thank you. Because I've never heard of anything like that. Oh, especially anybody listening, if they're more the creative type, they're probably like, huh. That's what I'm hoping is sparks. Is like yeah. more people I sure. mean, you've done it. You've shown that it works. Right. Like, and so just right. think how many if, if more of those type of things were out there across the US and some of our just beautiful places that we have here that people could just tune in and be like, tell me about this and how much right. more than I care about it. Right. About the space. Yeah. Yeah. I've wanted to see now I say these things out loud and then suddenly they they take take a life. But um I wanted to do the same thing of along um along the road from Silverthorne to Kremlin where we've just finish those wildlife crossing structures and just be able to tell people you're going to drive through some stuff that you may not even see and you won't know what you may not know what you're looking at. But if you listen in, for example, most of those crossing structures are underpasses. They go under the road and you would never know that you're driving over a wildlife travel pattern. Right. And so I think that's the kind of thing that that technology can do is mm. really help people understand the wildlife outside their windshield. I mean, especially in some, um, I mean, I-70, granted, it is gorgeous through the mountains. I mean, if you're just driving cross country, what else is there to do? Like, you know, yeah. you're driving 70, 75, you know, on these big open highways and yep. there's no reason to feel a sense of place in any way, shape right. or form. Right. But having something like that, I mean, I would totally tune in, especially right. a well-produced show, essentially. Yeah. So think about really driving, cool. think about driving across Wyoming on I-80. You're going through what just looks like nothing outside of your window. <laughs> That's a perfect example. And then... But it, this is the path of the pronghorn. These are there's real stuff happening out here, and there's a there's a reason why this area looks like it does. It supports a certain amount of wildlife that you wouldn't even think about because all you're trying to do is get to the other side of the state. And it, you know, to me, it's just an opportunity to just reach people. Oh my gosh! And they're gonna even be like history twist too. Yeah. And some of these places, there would be yeah. a great history lesson. Yeah. On you know. Like Native American culture and like what were the tribes that lived here that lived with this wildlife uh-huh. and this wildlife uh-huh. what they do like oh there's so many layers that could be on that yeah <laughs> yeah you know and I haven't looked at it recently but um, there's a downtown walking tour in Denver of breweries just think <laughs> it doesn't even have to be all wildlife <laughs> it's like oh my god exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
anyway, this project sounds amazing. Yeah, so it's a it's it's a fun one. It's good. Oh my god, that's awesome. Because you can have your hardcore science side, which one thing that you know I've learned, especially as well, was I used to be hardcore science, mm-hmm. and then the more and more I got into my career, the more I'm like, if no one hears this, no one cares. Yeah, and if no one cares. Everything I care about is going to be destroyed because they have no reason to protect it. Mm-hmm. So, because like the message of the scientists weren't getting out in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. So, like that's more of like what I view my role now sure. as. Is uh-huh. like I can translate what all these amazing scientists are doing and try to get it out in the world. Yeah, but it's like you can be stuck in the field. Which sometimes all I want to do is be stuck in the field. But <laughs> there's some days where I'm like, oh, man, working with the people side is not easy. And you being an executive director, oh, yeah. I'm sure you relate to. Um, I'm not an executive director of a nonprofit. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, well I, I, that's one of the things that I love about Rocky Mountain Wild is that the team we have assembled is um, there's a lot of there's a lot of give and take on things. And so. Uh, I tend to be the type of person where I want to get the word out. So I will say what sounds good about, oh, I don't know, like the species like the pika, right? Like I will come up with with a catchy little title about something with a pika. And then I have um, and then I have my biologist that will go, you know, <laughs> that's not technically correct. <laughs> And somewhere between the two of us, we come up with something that is scientifically sound, but still communicates a message. Mm. And I think we really just need both of those pieces. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. It's all about checks and balances. Yeah. Yep. So that's one thing I've, I've learned as, as an educator, I have a tendency to maybe exaggerate a few things mm. to get a point across. <laughs> <laughs> and then as your biologist, like, Terry, um, Terry, uh, no, um, retract that. <laughs> Kinda. Yeah. You don't want me writing the quotes in, um, in press, press releases. Because <laughs> I do a lot of that. I, like, Megan Mueller, senior biologist at Rocky Mountain Wild says, this species will die tomorrow. If you don't. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Yeah. And then she's like, no, 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 no. no yeah. <laughs> Try again. Yeah. <laughs> But it gets their attention, and then they really will write their own quotes after that. So. <laughs> like, this is what happens when you give me full read. Yeah. That is beautiful. On that note, since you've um, you've been, you know, in a leadership role for such a long time, mm-hmm. especially in the nonprofit world, um, for anyone listening, what is, like, a really good piece of advice or takeaway that you would like to share with anybody who wants to get into a leadership role or might be wanting to start their own nonprofit. What are some good takeaways? Uh, well, um, what would I say? Uh, okay, so nonprofits are wonderful places to work. It's definitely not easy work. Um, I have known many people who have been executive directors and haven't made it in that role. Usually, it comes to be a conflict. It's usually a conflict over with the board about some sort of aspect of leadership. Or it could be 
not understanding finances or one of those things. And so being an executive director is definitely not glamorous. Everybody thinks it's really cool, but it's not. Um, you have to know a little bit about what everybody does, but you can't to run a good team. If you know exactly what everybody's doing, then you're just clones of you, right? Mm, lots of micromanaging. Yeah. And so if there's a lot of trust that has to happen, a lot of listening. Um, you have to be willing to be wrong. Uh, and if you're just in it to be a spokesperson or a glory person, I think you're in the wrong field. Um, that said, it's okay to try it out. And if it doesn't work for you, it's great to acknowledge that and then move on to something else because it doesn't work for everybody. And financially, it can't work for a lot of people. And in fact, with a nonprofit our size, boy, you almost have to be in a committed relationship with somebody else with an income because you're not, it's hard to support yourself on what we can pay people in Denver. Mm. Especially out in the state. This is not a cheap yeah. state. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sad to say that. And I find it embarrassing. And when I find a way around that, that will not be the situation at our organization, but we, we fight for every penny we get, you know? So anyway, I think, uh, it's a, it's a great, it's a great place to be for some people. Mm. For me, it's perfect. Uh, for other people, not so much. And I like that you bring that up too, that it's okay if it doesn't work. Because mm. I think that maybe some people might feel like they failed or something, or if they did start a nonprofit at one time, or if they did really want to commit themselves to maybe a cause and like they went down the nonprofit route and it didn't go well. And maybe they had to retract and That's okay. go do something else. It's Yeah, it's okay. It's okay. It doesn't make you any less thoughtful or caring about that issue that you care about. And that's what really matters. And, and as we were talking, you know, you can still give part of your paycheck to the cause that you care about. Exactly. And let people who want to do or can do that work do that work. Um yeah. And, you know, not everybody, I, I run into lots of people that have a great idea and something they care passionately about. And the first place they go to is we need to start a nonprofit. It's like, they're not called nonprofits for no reason. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a tough road and you're not going to make a profit usually at this. And, and being a nonprofit doesn't guarantee that you'll catch the eye of donors or that you'll actually accomplish your mission, I would say check out every other way you can do this work first before you go down that path because it's not easy to become a nonprofit and sometimes it's just not necessary. Because um, it might be a, someone out there already doing something that you could just partner with or volunteer with or yeah, something like that. Yeah, or, you know, you can do a lot of the work within a for-profit model. Um, yeah. to be honest, I think starting a small business is sometimes easier than starting a nonprofit. You don't have a, necessarily a board of directors mm -hmm. that you're going to, going to have to recruit and maintain and, and listen to. Um, and I, I have a great board of directors. 
And um, I feel really blessed with that. But I've worked with some that aren't so good. And, and that it's a check and balance within a nonprofit that most people don't understand and they don't fully think about before they try to go down that road. Because you have to have a board. Like that's yeah. not, that's not and at, questionable. And at the beginning, it's always just your friends. Right. right? <laughs> Who cares? We need on my board. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then, and then so-and-so gets married and they move to another place and you got a board seat open and you start to get other people in there. And then, you know, you start to have goals with your board, like, oh, well, we really need somebody who understands finances. And you get somebody in there that understands finances and they point out that you're not doing your P&Ls right or, you know, whatever. You, it's, um, it's a unique way to do business that I don't think a lot of people quite understand. Mm-hmm. But, but I would also say that try it, you know, it's re- it can be super rewarding. Right. What's the worst that can happen? I mean, you go do something else. Yes. You're like, well, closing up the shop and I'm going to go get a job. You know, I mean, if that's the worst thing that can happen, then how much risk is there really? A whole bunch of chance for success. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, you don't want to throw a whole bunch of resources into something and, and lose that time and lose that money. But... So there are, there are, there is a downside to failing for sure. But I think in the grand picture, we're better for trying things. Mm-hmm. Imagine uh, how much you learn yeah. through that process. Yeah. Of the skills you would gain from just launching a business or trying to be in a big leadership role. Yeah. There's so much you could learn from that. Yeah. Even if you quote unquote fail. Yeah. You learned a lot. Yeah. <laughs> in the process. Yeah. Well, being... Being a small nonprofit is a lot about, it's a lot about failure. You have to be fine with that. It's like, oh, we didn't meet our budget goals this year. They were stretch goals. I couldn't do it. I tried, but I didn't make it. You know, it's, it's a daily kind of humbling experience, Mm. (laughs) which is good. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes I've had the ego put in check, you know, it's fine that's good. That's good. That's good on the heart. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's how I feel about it. Anyway, that's how I feel about it now. (laughs) I might not have when I was 30, but I do now. No, that was really great advice. So I have taken up so much of your time and I just want to make sure that if anybody wants to connect with you, that they have an opportunity. So what is the best way you, or if you prefer to go through Rocky Mountain Wild, how can anyone like interact? Sure. I think the best way to get me is to email me. You can call me, but I, I never pick up the phone. I listen to my messages <laughs> and then I forgot that I listened to that message and I was supposed to do something about it. So don't call. Um, but you can email me at Rocky Mountain Wild because uh, I do obviously look at that email every day. And that's um, it's Terry, T-E-H-R-I at RockyMountainWild.org. And Rocky Mountain Wild is all spelled out. Um, and yeah, and I, I love like, like probably about once a year, I wind up in sort of a mentorship position with somebody. And I really do love that opportunity to give people sort of a taste of a nonprofit and what management looks like. I can't take you out into the field and do science with you, but I can happily talk to you about how to read a profit and loss statement. What does a balance sheet look like? How do you interact with a board of directors? And, and you know, just like we were talking, the pros and cons of working for a nonprofit. And 
a lot of those people that I wind up mentoring, I wind up writing their recommendation letters <laughs> to get them into graduate school or college or all of those kinds of things. So um, I also have that skill set on the side. I'm a great recommendation letter writer. So there you go. <laughs> awesome, Terry. Well, this has been so much fun. Yes. It's not always good though. <laughs> it was good. Really fun. Thank you. Awesome. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet.